But welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're in the middle of our, our pre-launch series, and we've got this week and then two more weeks. We officially launch August 6th, um, but we're open. We're, we're here, and, uh, and, and we're excited to be here. But this pre-launch checklist has been all about what are some of the distinguishing factors of who we are as a church. So we talked about kind of the, the, the threefold pyramid of what membership at, at Compass Bible Church North Texas looks like, and that is that we attend regularly, that we connect together, and that finally we serve the body of Christ together. And that's kind of what it looks like to say, yeah, I'm, I'm an active part of, this is my church home, this is my church family. Now we're switching to talk about another distinguishing characteristic about us as a church, although really what I hope to show us this morning from James is that it's not anything unique to Christianity. So this is not something that it's like, well, is this something wonky or anything else? And, and really it's not. And it has to do with the concept that as Christians, we are here to surrender ourselves fully unto Christ. We have a phrase at Compass Bible Church that we use called ADAPAT, and you might wonder what in the world is, is that. It's, a, it's, it's an acronym that stands for this, anything, any place, anytime. Anything, any place, anytime. And we just shorten that to say ADAPAT. And we talk about being ADAPAT because really, as Christians, when we come to faith in Christ, when we repent from our sins and trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, what we're saying is, okay, Lord, I want to be out of path for you. I want to do anything, any place, any time. Take me where you want me. Use you where you need me. I'm surrendering everything to you. I lay it all down. The problem is that's not always the case, is it? My wife and I, we often go out to San Diego for Christmas because of her family who lives out there. And it was shortly after we got married, we went out there, and my, my uh, father-in-law got us tickets to go to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes banquet before the, the Poinsettia Bowl out there. I don't know what it's called now, the Holiday Bowl or whatever it is. Anyways, we got there, and, and we went in, and we were sitting in the room, and there were a bunch of these college football players and, and athletes in there, and it was great. And then I, I saw a guy walking around, and he had a Cowboys jersey on, and being from Dallas, I perked up with that, and I looked at it, and, and it was a large Samoan guy. And the back of the jersey said Tuane. And if you're a, a longtime Cowboys fan, you will know who that is. Mark Tuane, right? So I'm there. This is like 2006, 2007. I'm thinking, that's Mark Tuane. No way. That's a, he's, he won Super Bowls with the Cowboys. That's a, he's famous. So I got totally geeked out and was sitting there with my wife and talking. And I, I, I just said, I got to get a picture with him. I've got I to have a picture with Mark Tuane. So we um, went up to him, I did, and, and this was before the cell phones with cameras, and we had our little digital camera or whatever, and, and I, I tapped him on the shoulder, this man, and I said, excuse me, Mr. Tune, I, I'm a huge fan, can I get a picture with you? And he just smiled kindly and put his arm around me and posed for the picture and took a picture with me, and I went back riding on cloud nine. I was like, no way, I've got a picture with a Super Bowl winning uh, lineman for the, the Dallas Cowboys. And then we get in the car on the way home, and I was thinking to myself, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure that was Mark Tune. And I, I pulled out my phone, and I, I searched, and he had died, like, five years before that, at least. So I don't know who that was that I got a picture with. I have it framed. My brother-in-law, because he loves me, blew it up and framed it for me and gave it to me. So I have that picture of me and this guy wearing a Mark Tuna jersey, and he's probably still telling that story, too, to this day. See, the thing was, he was wearing the jersey and looking the part, but he wasn't really all in. He wasn't who he was putting himself out to be. It, it wasn't, wasn't his fault, right? He wasn't who I thought he was. Sometimes that's true in the church. We can wear the jersey, and we can put ourselves out looking a certain way when the reality is we're not really who we think we are. And in this area of the country, I'll just be honest, it's, it's easy 
to fall prey to that. And I grew up out here. I was raised out here from the time I was six, and I didn't leave here until after seminary and, and went out to California uh, from, from there. But, but I, I know the culture here. And I know the blessing that comes with it is that, yes, it's, it's easy to be a Christian here. It's, it's good. We, we live with a lot of freedoms and we live with a lot of blessings. But with that comes this caveat, this danger, that it's also easy to be self-deceived into not really understanding what does it look like to truly follow Jesus. So that's why I'd like us to spend some time in James chapter 2 this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to James chapter 2. And we're going to be specifically in verses 14 through 26. 14 through 26. I think in this passage, James gives us a picture of this adipat faith. This faith that says, okay, Lord, anything, any place, anytime, I'm wholly surrendering my life to you. Pick up in James chapter 2, verse 14. Let me read down through verse 17 to get started here. It says, James does. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The problem that James is addressing here is presented for us right away. Apparently there were some who were there within this body, this church body, that were teaching that there's no relationship whatsoever between faith and works. They were teaching that uh, your faith could be faith in a faith that saves even if there's no evidence of it whatsoever. This is a, a profession without a practice. This is a fire insurance Christianity that says, you know what, I, I don't want to go to hell, so let me pray a prayer and, and then I'll get my get out of hell free card and I don't have to worry about it and then I can just go on living however I want to live. This is telling people that you're a Christian, but still living just like the world all around you. It's a life that when you look at your words or your routines and your habits or your schedule or your fears and your anxieties, there's, there's really no difference between you and the atheist that lives next door. But you would say, yeah, yeah but I, I, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I was baptized. The profession of faith is completely devoid of the practice of faith. And that's what James is addressing. And he gives this example right off the bat. He says, what good is it? If, if someone comes to you and they're in need and, and they need food and they need clothing and, and you look at them and you say, hey, you know what? Go and be warm and be filled. But you don't do anything. He's basically asking the question, do your words hold any weight? And the answer is No. There's no substance to it. You may mean it. You may be genuine about hoping that, that somehow they are going to be warm and filled. But really, your words ring hollow because there's no practice there. James' question is this. Does this faith work to save this person? And I think the answer is no because the faith that works is a faith that works. Now, let me say this before we go any further. I know some of you are new and you don't know who I am and you're wondering, oh my goodness, did I just walk into a place where they're going to tell me I have to earn my salvation? Can I be abundantly clear and let you know you do not work for your salvation? That salvation is a free gift from God. That Paul writes in Ephesians that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Christ alone. And it was finished on the cross and we don't need to earn our salvation, merit our salvation, and your Christian life is not about proving that God made a good investment in you when he saved you. 
So salvation is a gift of God by grace alone, through faith alone, period. I just want to be abundantly clear in that. That's not in question. What's in question this morning is the nature of that faith. What should that faith look like? Or another way, another way to ask it is what should that faith do in our lives? It's not a, a, a do in the sense of saving us, but a do in a sense of responding to us. And I think what James is laying out for us here is that the nature of the faith that saves is that it's fruitful and productive. It looks a certain way. It bears itself out. It evidences itself such that people would look at our lives and see that God is at work in and through us, through his spirit working in us. A faith without fruit is fraudulent faith, and it's a faith that we must flee. And that's our first point this morning. It's this, flee from fraudulent faith. It's too many F's in one point. But flee from fraudulent faith. There's four of them there. You remember in school, you remember growing up and going in kindergarten class, they would have the parachute in gym class. You remember that? I remember it. It was a great day when you saw the parachute because they would like flap it up in the air and all the kids would run underneath and then the parachute, anybody driving with me? We can interact. We can be an interactive crowd here. It's okay. Yeah? You've experienced that? Well, well, do you remember, at least in ours, in our school, there there was like a hole in the middle of that parachute to make it easy for it to come back down, right? Okay. You would look at that and say, oh, look, that's a parachute. But ain't nobody going to strap that onto their back and jump out of an airplane from 30,000 feet, are they? Because it's, it's not the genuine article. It's not really a parachute. We call it a parachute. It looks kind of like a parachute. But in the end, it's, it's not going to do the job that a real parachute is supposed to do. James would say, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, doesn't work. In other words, James says, it's dead. This is James' thesis statement here. That a faith without works is dead. That a faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. If you're saying you're a Christian because you intellectually have assented to the the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in other words, you believe these things to be true, and you're saying, yes, they're true, I agree that they're true, or because you're saying you're a Christian because you've always been around the church, you've grown up in church, or you're saying you're a Christian because you prayed a prayer when you were a little kid, or because you walked an aisle, or because a pastor baptized you, but... Your life doesn't look any different from your friends who would say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Then I think James would say that he's concerned for you. Because again, a faith without works is dead. Walking an aisle, being saved at summer camp, being baptized by my pastor, always going to church my whole life. See, these are all things that people will appeal to to say, this is why I'm saved. I'm saved because of this. And and really the experience becomes the object of their faith rather than Jesus as the object of their faith. And when an experience is the object of our faith, then we point back to that and it's kind of like our anchor point and then we just give ourselves all kinds of slack to drift as far away from it as we want to because we always know we can come back to this anchor point. But the problem is, is that anchor point is not Jesus but something that you've experienced instead. And so we say, well, I'm a Christian because, but then our life doesn't look that way. Is this just James, though, that teaches this? I think it's a valid question. In fact, if you know the great reformer Martin Luther, Martin Luther did not like the the book of James. 
And, and we can empathize with him because you'll remember Luther in his Reformation ways was, was attempting to get out from under the oppressive nature of the Roman Catholic doctrine that taught that works are necessary to, to save you. And again, let me be clear. I'm not telling you works are necessary to save you. I'm talking about what saving faith then does as a result. So uh, this is not a works-based salvation. But Luther was protesting against that with Rome. And so when he reads James and he comes to James here, this sounds difficult for Luther, especially a, a part that we'll get to in just a minute here. But we need to ask the question, okay, well, is it just James or do other people teach this? How about 2 Corinthians 5.17? 2 Corinthians 5.17. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation, Right? And then he goes, he goes on to say this, the old has passed away and the new has come. What distinguishes something from old and something from new? It's going to look different, isn't it? If it looks the exact same, acts the same way, if you got a brand new car, let's say you traded in just an old jalopy, right? Like you had had a, a 1990 Corolla, and I drive a Corolla so I can insult a Corolla, it's okay. And you had driven it into the ground and it, it, it finally gave out for you and you went and you bought a brand new car and you drive it off the lot and it has the same exact problems as that 1990 Corolla. You'd have a problem, wouldn't you? You'd go back to the dealership and say, I don't think this is a new car. You're telling me it's a new car. Maybe from the outside it looks like a new car, but this is driving just like my old one that I just got rid of. See, something that's new looks different. It acts different. It's transformed. And so James is not alone, I don't think. I think Paul is teaching something similar there. Or how about this from Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Romans 6, 1 and 2, he says, what should we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? And then he says, by no means, absolutely not. And then he asks the question, how can we who died to sin right, because we were united to Christ in a baptism, in, in a death like his, how can we who, who died to sin with Christ continue now to, to live in it? He's saying it doesn't make sense. So Paul is saying if we have died to sin, our lives should look different on the other side of it, right? Keep your finger in James. Turn over, though, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We've referenced this a couple times. Pastor Rod mentioned this passage a couple times as he was preaching or as he was leading in worship this morning. And this is the great, by grace you have been saved through faith, right? This is the passage. This is the one. But I want us to see that there's still a relationship between the, the, the transformation that takes place by grace through faith, unquestionably. But what does it do in us? Let's start in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that's the bad news, right? That's who all of us in this room at one time were. But then those two words, and we sang about them, but God. But God. And what did he do? Well, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the passage, that's the the anthem of the, the Christian gospel. By grace, through faith, period, end of story. And yet a couple of observations. Notice the transformation that takes place. You were dead. Dead in what? Your trespasses and sins. Now, but God, you've been made alive. Well, if we've been made alive, should we not look different than we were when we were dead in our trespasses and sins? But not only that, look at verse 10. Look at what Paul writes right after. By grace you've been saved through faith. Paul writes this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, all I'm suggesting this morning is not that we earn our salvation. It's not that that we merit the faith that saves. I'm suggesting the faith that saves is one that works itself out in our lives, that evidences itself in how we live, that causes us to be the salt and light in the world around us. And I would say that that's not just the testimony of James, but it's also the testimony of the the full corpus of Scripture there. Still, you may object. There may be something that doesn't sit well with you about that, and James anticipated that. If you'll pick back up in verse 18. Verse 18, back in James chapter 2. James says this, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. James responds, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The but at the beginning of this verse implies that this is an, op- a, a, an, an opponent, somebody that's, that's standing against what James has just been saying. James, I don't like your emphasis on works, and so I'm going to tell you that I have faith without works. And James' response is this. He says, great, show me your faith without works, but I will show you my faith by my works. His argument is essentially that, that faith and works are separate things this opponent is, that don't have any relationship with one another. But James's response is, is one that is somewhat sharp to this opponent. When he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and, and the reality is you, you can't. You can't. Then he goes on and says, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's the whole point. That's our argument here. That's James' argument. Not that works produce faith, but faith is seen as it produces works, and genuine faith will always evidence itself, will always produce these works. And then in verse 19, notice James lowers the boom. When he says this, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That verse right there should send a chill down our spine. You believe that God is one? Great. James says even the demons have sound theology. The doctrine of demons is better than the doctrine of so many churches today. And they will even shudder at the thought of God. And yet none of us would sit here and say, but demons are saved. They've got their doctrinal ducks in a row, but none of us would say that they are friends of God. We would look at them and say they are standing opposed to God. Doctrine is important, absolutely 100% important, but doctrine does not save you. It cannot save you. True saving faith is built on something deeper than doctrine. True saving faith, which is what we're talking about here this morning, this adipat faith that says to God, anything, any place, any time, I will surrender my life to you. What causes us to be willing to do that is not doctrine, but relationship. And that's our second point this morning. It's this. Pursue a real relationship with Jesus. 
pursue a real relationship with Jesus. Where I went to college with my wife, which was Master's College, Master's University. Now, we had something that, that I forget what it was even called, but this was pre-Facebook. And yet it was kind of like an inter-campus net Facebook. We called it StalkerNet is what we called it. Because you could go on and you could find somebody on there and you could figure out what their class schedule was. It was, I don't know why, who thought about it, but it was there. So I met my wife at a back to school function and I thought, wow, she's really attractive and, and super cute and I, I think I want to marry her. That was kind of day one, I was, I was there with her. And uh, so I did what any guy in my position would do. I, I went back up and I, I looked her up on StalkerNet. I was like, what, what are her classes? What routes do I need to take to my classes? to give me the best shot at seeing her. And we, li- we went to a small college. I mean, Master's is not a big college, but I wanted to have as many opportunities to, to see her as I possibly could. Well, for a few days, I had called her and asked her out like that night. Like I, I was like, Christian dating is weird, guys. I don't know if you guys all experienced the Christian dating scene in co- Christian colleges, but here's what, it, the unwritten rules of Christian dating. You ready for it? You have to have a group date, then you have to have a double date, then you can go out one-on-one after that. Then it's like, okay, right? The, the Protestant Pope, John MacArthur, he like gives you the thumbs up at that point. <laughs> Anyways, I was like, okay, I got to do that. So I, I got back up to my dorm room. I called her. I left a message. I said, hey, I've got a bunch of guys together. We want to go out bowling. Why don't you get some of your friends and, and we'll, we'll all go bowling. I had no one to go bowling with at that point, but I needed to get them. So that was my goal. But then I didn't hear anything back for like three days. And I, look, I've been rejected plenty of times in my life. So I just chalked it up to that, but I still was thinking, well, maybe there's a shot. So those few days, with StalkerNet in mind, I would walk by her on campus and she would smile at me. And I'm like, what kind of devilish tricks is she playing on me? I do not get what's going on here. She got my message on her voicemail. I don't know what's going on. Turns out she let her friend borrow her phone. This is, wait, this is pre-cell phones and, and all that stuff. And so she let her friend borrow her phone and she wasn't able to check her messages until later. But if I had told people, hey, you know what, Amanda and I are, are dating, we've got a relationship, we're dating, when all I really knew was just some things about her, people would have looked at me and been like, you are the creepiest guy on the face of the earth. Some of you probably already think that about that stage, but it's okay, we ended up married, we're good now. <laughs> but if I had thought that that was a relationship, just knowing a few things about her, like what her class schedule was and what her favorite color is and what her mom's maiden name was and stuff like that. I didn't know those things, by the way, just her class schedule. If I had only known that and said, I, I have a relationship with her, that's not a relationship, is it? That's not a relationship. That's a one-sided, I've got some knowledge about her. And y'all, we need to be careful to make sure that that's not a relationship with God. That we're not sitting here going, well, I know some things about God. Luke 34, Luke 4, 34. You're going, there's no Luke 34, I'm out, I'm gone. Luke chapter 4, verse 34. This is one of the demons speaking to Jesus. It says, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's a demon with a messianic title that he applies to Jesus when he calls him the Holy One of God. It's a demon saying to Jesus, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. John chapter 6, okay? John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. I, I, I want us to, to pick up on this, okay? Because here's Simon Peter. Jesus has just looked at his disciples said, do you want to go away too? Look at the confession from Peter and compare it to the confession of the demon. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so in Luke 4, you've got a demon saying you're the Holy One of God. And now in John chapter 6, you've got Peter saying you're the Holy One of God. Question is, what's the difference between the two? It's not doctrine. They both have the same doctrine. It's got to be something more than that. It's got to be a true, genuine relationship. That discipleship that says to Jesus, I want you and you only, and I'm, I'm willing to follow you anything, any place, any time. Take it all. I'm, I'm after you. See, y'all, sound doctrine is important, but sound doctrine cannot save you. There are plenty of people in hell today with sound doctrine. There's no one in hell today who had a true relationship with Jesus. And that's what we're after. The difference is the difference of relationship. And so the question this morning is, do you have that relationship? More than just the intellectual assent, more than just the head knowledge, more than just the experience that you point back to, but do you this morning have an active relationship with God through Jesus Christ? This is what sustains what we talked about in point number one. This is what sustains those works. This is what sustains the transformation. Is it's a, a relationship with him. A, a dynamic, active relationship with him. Think for a moment, if you will, about your relationship with your best friend. Whoever that is. Maybe it's an old friend from college that you keep in touch with. Maybe it's your spouse if you're married. If, if, if you say, I love my best friend... What evidence would there be to support that? What does that relationship look like in your life? You love your friends and that impacts your life, right? That, that changes the way that you interact with them. You talk to them. You reach out to them. You think about them. You care for them. When they're in need, you, you are there. You, you serve them. Your love for them goes beyond knowledge about them. Your love for them produces action. Y'all, our love for Christ needs to produce that action as well. Our relationship with Jesus should look like something. It's not just a category. It's not just a label. It's not just a, a get-out-of-hell-free card. Jesus is alive. We just sang that. He's our risen king. And it's about a relationship with him and pursuing that relationship with him. In fact, take your Bibles and, and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you will. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy is after 1 Timothy. There's no 3 Timothy. If your Bible has a 3 Timothy, bring it to me afterwards and I'll get you a different one. Some, 2 Timothy 1. Okay, the Apostle Paul. Did the Apostle Paul have some sound doctrine? Yes? North, south? Yes. Okay, good. We're all on the same page. I'm glad we're all on the same page on that. Yeah, he did, right? He's writing Romans. He's writing the systematic theology of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, not only that, but if we go even back prior to that, he was tutored by Gamaliel. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He was a Pharisee. Paul was a guy steeped in the Scriptures. He knew doctrine, and yet... Let's pay attention to what he says here in 2 Timothy chapter 1. So encouraging for us. Paul writing to Timothy says this, Therefore do not be ashamed, verse 8, of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, 
not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Stop there for a second. That's the doctrinal dump truck, right? He just went through the gospel. He just went through and laid it out for us. And that's the doctrine of the gospel there. But now, what does he say? But I am not ashamed. For I know... What's it say? I know whom I have believed. Paul, when he's appealing to his confidence, y'all, does not say, I'm not ashamed for I know what I have believed. He doesn't say, I'm not ashamed because, man, I got Gamaliel in my back pocket. He doesn't say, I'm not ashamed because didn't you see I wrote all of these books of the Bible? He doesn't say that. He says, I'm not ashamed because I know Jesus. I know whom I've believed. I have a relationship with him. He's my confidence. It's not my, my textbooks. It's Jesus. It's a relationship that I have with him. That's where my confidence is. I know whom I have believed. And so let me ask you this morning, do you have confidence in whom you have believed and not just in what you have believed? Because that's the difference. This is the relationship part of the faith that works. And this is what fuels it. This is what sustains it. This is what causes us to say, okay, Jesus, anything, any place, any time. It's because of whom we believed. If you're dry in that area right now, can I ask you, what are you doing to foster that relationship today? What are you doing right now to lean into your relationship with Jesus? If you were distant from a friend, what are some things you would do to close that gap? You would want to spend time with that friend. You would want to talk with that friend. Right? Time, effort, consistency. Y'all, if you're dry right now, those three things are so important for us. Time spent pursuing him in the word. Effort. Is it, does it take discipline? Yeah, it takes discipline. Man, I'm going to get out of bed maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes earlier today because I want to spend that time in the word and prayer. And con consistency. Keeping after it. If you miss a day, does that mean that you're a failure and God doesn't want you anymore? No. If you miss a week, does that mean that you're a failure and God doesn't want you anymore? No. But don't let that derail you and go, well, I'll wait until January 1st and start my, my Bible reading plan again at that, at that point. Jump back in and keep pursuing that relationship. Can I just stop real quick and just make sure that we all understand, I'm not trying to tell you this is a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of a sermon. You can't. And I, I guarantee you in this room, there are plenty of people, myself included, that have tried that. You felt distant from God and you thought, if I just white knuckle it and try a little bit harder, maybe then I'll get closer to him. You, you can't do it that way. It's got to be a love for Jesus that drives all of that. It's got to be this relationship for Jesus that drives all that. And so what this sermon is about is it's calling you back to that relationship with him. So that you love him and that's going to overflow into your life and your life will then look different. That's why I'm not going to give you a long laundry list of here's how you go and evidence your faith. Start by loving Jesus and that will take care of itself. Start with this relationship with Christ and that will take care of itself. And that's time in the word is the, the, the best place to begin with that. 
Not to give a shameless plug, but Pastor Rod and I are doing a, a daily Bible reading podcast to help with that so that you can listen to that and it tracks with our daily Bible reading plan here at the church so that then you can kind of walk away each day after you've done the Bible reading and listen to the podcast and go, okay, yeah, I, 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 I'm taking some nuggets away from that. Love to have you jump on and give that a listen. Knowledge about God doctrine is important, but it's just the on-ramp, guys. It's just the on-ramp. If you're on the on-ramp, you're not yet on the freeway. And so if all you've got is doctrine, you're not quite there yet. That doctrine is meant to produce that devotion to Christ. James continues and concludes our passage in verses 20 through 23 where he says this, Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You may have e-breaks going off in your mind left and right right now. We'll get there. Don't worry about it. You see that faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Okay, James here is writing to former Jews predominantly. So when he mentions Abraham, they're going, wait, what? Abraham, we're going to track with this. We're listening. We're tuned in. We're, we're keen on what you're about to say here. And then he says, Abraham was justified by works. This is what led Martin Luther to call James an epistle of straw. That was a big insult back then, apparently. So, yeah. Was what led Martin Luther to be like, this is not, this is wrong. He didn't like it. Because Paul said the opposite in Romans 4. That Abraham was justified by faith. And James is saying Abraham was justified by works. And so what gives? Well, this is where it's important for us to understand a little bit more about justification. There's two elements or two aspects of our justification that I think Paul emphasizes one and James emphasizes the other. When Paul wrote that Abraham was justified by faith, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? He was referring to what's known as our forensic righteousness, our forensic justification, okay? That is that moment where legally we are declared not just not guilty, but innocent in the court of God because of Christ. We get the full righteousness of Jesus applied to our account. So we are declared righteous in God's sight. When does that take place? That takes place at the moment of salvation. We repent from our sins and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we are forensically declared not just not guilty, but innocent, righteous with the righteousness of Christ. Okay? And that's what Paul was saying with Abraham. He's emphasizing that point there. James is emphasizing the vindication part of our justification. That is, that we are fully vindicated and proven, so to speak, justified when we are vindicated through staying the course like the writer of Hebrews talks about so much, holding fast to our confidence in Jesus, living a life that we're talking about here in James, this faith that works, so that when we die and we stand before the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's our vindication, and that's another element of our justification. Does that change the forensic declaration? No. Does it make us any more righteous than we were at the moment we were saved? No. We are righteous with the full righteousness of Christ at the moment of salvation. But we are justified, in other words, proven vindicated at that moment when we stand before Christ and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And this act of life of living out of faith that works is what that vindication then looks like. And so James and Abraham, or James and Abraham, James and Paul are not 
disagreeing with each other. They're holding up the, the concept of justification. And, and Paul is emphasizing one side and James is emphasizing another. And you say, well, why? Why did they emphasize these two different sides? Well, that brings us back to the point that these letters were written to specific people at specific times. And so, so many of the New Testament letters were written to address specific situations facing their original audience. And so James was writing to a group that needed to hear this side of the element of justification. Paul was writing to a group that needed to hear the other side of the element of justification. But they were both writing about the same doctrine of justification, just looking at it from two different angles. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are... Notice what Paul says there. What does he say? By which you are being saved. So even Paul talks about our vindication side of our justification here. That we are being saved. Am I already saved? Yes. Am I being saved? Yes. Will I ultimately be saved? Yes. You say, what? We might put a a parallel concept here in some regards, the, the concept of sanctification, okay? Positionally, we are set apart as holy to God at the moment of salvation. That means we are declared righteous. We are made righteous in Christ at the moment we are saved. That's positional, okay? Then there's progressive sanctification. That's the life that we live now, here and right now, where you and I, day by day, are being made more and more like Jesus, Okay? We are being conformed, Paul says in Romans 8, more and more to the image of Christ. That is a progressive thing that takes the rest of our lives. None of us are going to reach a point here on earth where we're going to say, I'm done being sanctified. What's next, God? We're always going to be made more like Jesus. And then there's the perfect sanctification, and that's when we are taken to glory, taken to be with God in heaven, when we experience the, the freedom from the very presence of sin. We are no longer enslaved to it. We are with Him. We can kind of think of it that way. Our forensic justification is our positional. We are declared righteous. But then we are being saved, and God in saving us is using that progressive sanctification to deliver us to that final place of being fully vindicated when we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's a lot just to help us see that that James and Paul are not disagreeing with each other here. They're just emphasizing two different sides of the same doctrine. Again, the life of obedience that we're now living, that we're, we've been talking about, this, this full surrender, this out Christianity that we're talking about here, is the vindication of that forensic justification that took place at the moment of our salvation. It's, it's evidencing the righteousness that we now have in Christ. It's not earning it. It's not adding to it. It's just simply showing That God has redeemed us and God has saved us. And so in that sense, James can write, Abraham was justified by works. One day, I hope that we, all of us in this room, will be able to say that. That we will be able to look back on our life and say that we were shown, vindicated by the works that are produced by the Spirit working in and through us as a result of our salvation. Our final point this morning is that along those lines, complete your faith by staying the course. Complete your faith by staying the course. And that opening line there, complete your faith, comes from the passage that we just read. Look again at James 2.22. 
you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Okay. Again, you might have red flags. What do you mean my faith is completed? I thought you said I'm not adding to the righteous. You're not adding to the righteousness of Christ. Let me put it this way. I can tell you all day long that I can deadlift 350 pounds. And most of you look at me and go, no, you can't. And you're right, I can't. But I could tell you all day long, you know what, I can deadlift 350 pounds. That is empty until I go and I bend over on that bar and I, I actually pull it off and do it. And I'm not going to do that because the bar wouldn't move and I would just fall flat on my face, okay? But if I were, let, let me give you a different, I can deadlift 50 pounds. I'm pretty confident in that. I'm pretty sure I could. <laughs> and I could tell you that and I could, I could let you all know, I, hey, I, I got it. Don't worry about it. 50 pounds, I got it. I'm pretty sure I've, my dog is almost there and I'm, I can still pick him up, so I'm, I'm good. But you might be like, okay, yeah, but, but complete your statement and show me that you can deadlift because I'm not sure. And then if I actually did that, then my profession would be completed by my works. Does that make sense? The fact that I bend down and do it doesn't change whether or not I could do it. It doesn't make what I said true or not true. It was true because that's the reality. But now I'm showing it to be true. Does that make sense? So when James writes that his faith was completed by his works, it's not suggesting that there is something lacking in faith that needs to be filled up or, or finished by our works, but it's that our faith is, is, is shown, it's evidenced. It's, it's that vindication of going, okay, okay, yeah, I get it, that's, I see it, that's true, and that's what it means that we need to complete our faith by staying the course. Again, like the writer of Hebrews said, that, that we would hold fast to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says this, we must all, now note, Paul is talking to believers here. We must all Christians appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the great white throne, okay? This is the judgment seat where he dispenses rewards. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is what we're talking about. Completing our faith so that at that day, our faith is shown to be genuine. Our faith is shown to result in the rewards and not the wood, hay, and stubble that will burn up. What does this look like? What are some of these things that we should be amassing for ourselves? Maybe it's your, your time in the Word every single day. We refer to it with another acronym because we just like to acronymize, if that's a word, everything here at Compass Bible Church. So it's our DBR, our daily Bible reading. That, that we're spending time in the Word every single day. That, that's, that's completing our works. Or completing our faith, rather, by our works. Maybe it's, it's like this. Maybe it's passing up on the promotion that you were offered at work because you know to take that, it's going to mean that you're going to have to compromise in your faith. It means that you're going to have to compromise on your convictions as a believer. And so you let that go. That might be your faith completing, or your, your works completing your faith. Maybe it's holding fast and staying faithfully committed to your spouse in the difficult season in your marriage. And you say, I'm not going anywhere. Even though it would be easier to walk away. Maybe that's your works completing your faith. Maybe that's joining a church plant, hint, wink, wink, nod, nod, and helping to get a church plant off the ground, right? Maybe that's your, your works completing your faith. Maybe it's reporting your income accurately on your taxes, even though you know, man, if I didn't throw that extra income in there, man, I, I, maybe I'd get some money back. 
right? you know your integrity is at stake, and so you report it accurately. Maybe that's your, your works completing your faith. It's doing what God desires even when it's not popular with the world. Right? This is, is, is what's in front of us, Christian. This is the call to complete your faith by staying the course. Things like that. So that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which Paul just told us all of us will someday, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because the, the righteousness of Christ that was ours at the moment of salvation then transformed our lives and we lived a life of faithful obedience to Jesus saying anything, any place, any time. I found this to be convicting and troubling. This is a, a quote that I came across recently. It said this, After living in America for a matter of months, a Christian-Iranian couple decided to move back to Iran. The wife told her husband, there's a satanic lullaby here, meaning in America. All the Christians are sleepy, and I'm feeling sleepy. It's sobering, I hope. Here you've got a, a couple, an Iranian couple that moved here and decided to go back to Iran. Why? Because they said that the, the culture of Christianity here has been lulled into a satanic lullaby. And it was impacting them, and they didn't want it anymore. Adipat Christianity, guys, will stand out from this cultural Christianity. Adipat Christianity is going to evidence itself. And yet what's so shocking and, and, and heartbreaking at the same time is Adipat Christianity really is not all that radical when we give ourselves over to read what God really wants from us from the pages of Scripture. James said it this way, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also a faith apart from works is dead. In other words, a faith that works is a faith that works. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray and ask first off with a, a concept and topic so important and so huge, Lord, that, that I would not have muddied the waters. And I pray that if there was anything that I said that is not in keeping with your word, that it would be forgotten. God, I, I pray that we would be committed to living out our life as you have designed us to live it out as believers, as followers of Jesus. I pray that we would be those Christians that say, okay, God, anything, any place, any time. I pray that we would have a, a full surrender to you. Not driven by a sense of guilt or duty or shame. Or feeling like we, we, we have to, but always looking horizontally at other Christians, thinking, well, I'm not as good a Christian as this person over here. That, that will never sustain us, God. Instead, Father, I pray that it would be driven by that true relationship with Jesus. I pray that every single day you would increase our affections for Christ. Make us love Jesus more and more and more every day that passes. Lord, I pray that this church body would be brothers and sisters in Christ who stir one another up towards that end who provoke in, in each other a love for Jesus that fuels our devotion to him. God, we want to be faithful. We, we want to be found faithful, doing the works that you have for us to do when you come back, if you should come back before you call us home. If not, God, when you call us home and we stand before you, Father, we, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Keep us, God, from a, a, a spirit that would be prideful in any of this, that would, that would want to boast in our own merit, in our own works. For we know, as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, that the works that we work are only produced in us by your spirit. As we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is you who works in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. Lord, we are simply your vessels. And so, God, I, I pray that you would pour your spirit through us and enable us to be effective instruments in your hands. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.